The other side of data as well is that it's useless if it's not used. So it's also how do we build, I guess, firstly, like data literacy, particularly within governments. As a ex-civil servant myself, you know, data literacy is not something that was often front of mind. Like it would be something siloed away to economists or statisticians or IT teams, but it needs to be a fundamental tool of policymaking, service design, service delivery. So part of that, you're building data workflows, you're building skills, and you're also trying to make data useful for decision-making. So that includes how you're telling stories around data, how you're doing visualization, dashboards, and all this as well. So I agree, like data and all these other tools are really valuable in terms of actually trying to get us back on track. Hi, Smart Community friends, and welcome back to the Smart Community Podcast. In this episode, I have a fantastic conversation with Callum Handforth. Callum works for the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP, and has led innovation and digitization efforts globally, as well as advised governments around the world. He was also co-chair of the Digital Infrastructure Task Force, part of the World Economics Forum G20 Working Group on Smart Cities. In this episode, Callum and I discuss the types of things he works on at the UNDP and the progress made on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals since they were introduced in 2015. We talk about using data and storytelling to drive progress and innovation, including Callum's BLT acronym when thinking about data and the potential of open source digital solutions to improve city infrastructure and services. Callum tells us about his favorite project he's been working on at the UNDP that incorporated a human-centered design approach to improve a market in Gambia and the emerging trends of refocusing on the city as the center of innovation and development. We finish our chat discussing the importance of community and of sharing failures to achieve the SDGs and smart community outcomes, plus the power of celebrating even small wins. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hi again, Zoe here, just popping in on a personal note. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it to Barcelona this year as I had a family situation and I wasn't able to go overseas at that moment. So I really missed everyone. I got lots of different photos and updates. Um, so thank you for all of you who sent me updates who were over there. I really look forward to attending again next year, hopefully. So yeah, I just thought I'd let you know that because I know that I mentioned it quite a number of times. I was very excited, but unfortunately, I was not able to make it. Okay, enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Callum. How are you today? Hi, good morning. So I'm good. Thank you. That is awesome to hear. I am really excited to have you on the podcast on this beautiful Friday morning. So let's just jump straight in. And can you tell us your background and what you're passionate about? Thanks. Uh, thanks again for having me. So in terms of background, I work at the United Nations Development Program, leading and shaping a lot of our work on digitalization, innovation, and also smart cities. Um, in terms of what I'm passionate about, I think it's about how we can put those tools, so digital technology and innovation, use them for, for social good and for real social impact as well. 
Awesome. I mean, that's a huge remit. <laughs> it's a little, yeah, exactly. Very, very exciting and a, and a real privilege. That's amazing. Um, And just uh, before we were talking, you were saying you worked in cities before. Can you give us a little bit of your professional background, how you ended up uh, in this space? Yeah. So before, the UN, uh, before joining the UNDP, spent a lot of time working in the development sector, uh, working quite closely with national and local governments in many parts of the world. Um, and then many, many years ago, I was back in the UK, back in London, where I was working in national government and also local government. So managing digital infrastructure, policies, other aspects in city level and also at national level too. Awesome. And you're based in Singapore now, is that right? Based in Singapore now. So my role is split between our chief digital office team in New York and our UNDP Global Centre for Technology, Innovation and Sustainable Development, which is a collaboration between the government of Singapore and UNDP here in Singapore. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into some of the work you do in a bit more detail, but let's go broad first. And can you tell me what a smart community means to you? So I really like the smart community framing. Often when we we hear the kind of term smart cities, right? We And if, if you Google smart cities, you see page after page of high-tech cities, laser beams all over the place, but often no people, no trees, no livelihoods, no animals. So I think this community aspect is, is really interesting because for me, the drive of any kind of city and smart city or any type of innovation is people, your kind of human capital. So I think for me, a smart community is a community that is uh, empowered to engage with these kind of tools, but it's also a community that is shaping decisions and shaping how cities are evolving and, and developing. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because yeah, when I first came into this space, there were so many laser beams, you know, and I'm like, why do we need so many laser beams? Yeah, exactly. Like people often would uh, say, you know, it's like the Jetsons, like smart cities like the Jetsons, and I would often say I think it's a combination of the Flintstones and the Jetsons where we're actually, you know, using our human resources more effectively, what makes sense, but and also learning from the stuff that, that still works and then mm-hmm. using the tools available. So, yeah, I think the people aspect and even just – like it seems like a small thing when we talk about visualization of you know a smart city or a smart community or like you know what people are actually seeing but actually if you continue to show those kind of you know images without any people then you can't like it just doesn't it doesn't work right you're, you're completely right and you mentioned the word tool right for me this is about how we um i guess give cities a kind of broadest possible toolkit i think the, the risk is that so cities are a really key driver of development, right? We're going to see by, um, you know, the, the middle point of this century, like two and a half billion more people living in cities, particularly a lot of urbanization growth across Africa and Asia. It's really phenomenal. So we really need to understand, you know, how we position cities as really key drivers of sustainable development. And as part of that is about recognizing that there are different modalities to the city. And I think that toolkit is is really important. So when we talk, for example, about smart cities, we talk about technology and innovation and that even that slightly broader framing means you can then look at the high tech, you can look at the low tech, the kind of frugal innovation, that kind of Flintstones example, you know, how you reuse what's gone before, the kind of more basic stuff. But then it also includes things like nature-based solutions, like, you know, how do we start looking at the urban environment more holistically um, and how we can use different resources, different framings, different pathways to kind of actually make cities, you know, livable, inclusive, sustainable, and, and so on. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think from a, um, like a UN level, it's obviously like that kind of really high level and strategic, but then breaking it down to make it really practical as well. Cause it's not just about the, you know, the thinking anymore. It's actually about the, you know, the action and what we're actually going to do about this as well. Right. 
Exactly. So we're very fortunate at UNDP. So we have about 170 country offices around the world. So we go quite quickly from that kind of global piece down to working very closely with our country offices on the ground, many of whom are working with every city. So from capital cities to tier two, tier three, smaller cities, and often obviously also the kind of last mile. And I think when we look at this kind of smarter city or smart community angle, you're also looking beyond the, I guess, the geographical bounds of the city that like you're looking at the impact of the city on kind of rural areas, you know, the rural urban migration aspect. You're looking at the city in the context of other cities in the country or in the region too. So I think that broader framing is, is really helpful. And I think very lucky to be at UNDP where we have like global and strategic work that we do, but we also very quickly are trying to make this stuff and, and making it relevant on the ground with our country offices um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm keen to discuss some of the projects and things you've been working on, but let's start with uh, a bit of framing, I guess, for the audience when, you know, thinking about UNDP, what's a like a day, a day in a life look like for you and what types of things are you, are you doing? So a day can be quite a long day. The exciting thing about my role is it's global, but the harder thing about my role is it's also global. So, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work across um, Asia Pacific here in the region, a lot of work across the, the African continent, continent uh, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and also Latin America as well. Like urbanization is a really exciting opportunity globally, but there's also real challenges and, and issues it can pose as, as well, if not managed well. So there's no shortage of, of demand for, for collaboration and, and for support and guidance in, in that context. I think in terms of a typical day, a lot of our time is spent working with our country officers. They're the ones on the ground doing this really, really important work and engagement. And it's how as a glo global function, we can support and amplify that work. So it might be technical advice, it might be policy advice, it might be bringing new partnerships and new solutions into countries and into cities. Sometimes it's about training and also it's about giving cities platforms to to share this stuff as well. So we have obviously big uh, global events like the UNDP works on, like the UN General Assembly, just um, a few weeks back. But then also how do we start building dialogues between cities around the world on a more regular basis to, to share that kind of learning you mentioned earlier um, and to kind of learn from each other um, as well? Yeah, awesome. And I guess from a project perspective, you know, you've got your your country offices. What types of things? I mean, you've explained a little bit, but is it is it really? I mean, I guess it would be very varied, right? On the types of things you're doing. So, and you're looking. Your remit is around smart cities, and you also deal with a lot of like AI and things like you know, kind of obviously it fits into that space. But what types of I guess different projects and things are you working on in this space? Yeah, so I should have mentioned earlier with the kind of framing, but. Within the UN system, UNDP has is a steward of all 17 sustainable development goals. So these were the 17 goals agreed by the General Assembly in 2015, with a deadline of of 2030, tackling areas you know like uh, ending poverty, improving gender equality, improving conservation and, and biodiversity management. There's there's a real focus of many many different areas. Often, I think we focus on particularly when we talk about cities, we focus on SDG number 11 about sustainable and you know broader communities and, and cities. But I think if we look at this kind of broader framing of smart cities, cities are relevant for every single one of the SDGs. And that then translates into the work that our country offices are doing. So, for example, we have our team in Cuba, for example, doing some great work on like urban mobility. Like how do they do multimodal transport that is wanted and demanded by the community in, in a much more holistic way? So that's you know going to be talking quite discreetly to, to SDG 11, but also they're bringing in new voices into that perspective. So there's a lot of work around uh, equality there, too. We've got our team in in the Gambia, for example, who are improving like local revenue uh, tax collection to improve um, municipal service management and delivery. So again, there you're looking at partnerships with uh, local communities, you're looking at leveraging technology and, and so on. 
But I think back to your point on on technology, I think we always see the technology as as a tool. So we do get cities and countries come to us and say, like, we would like to do some work on, on AI or blockchain or big data. Our first aspect is trying to understand, you know, what is the drive of this technology? Because we don't want to be led by the solution. We need to find this stuff on the problem and the need and the requirements locally. Sometimes AI can be a valuable tool for this or big data or 5G. Sometimes we may need a different tool. Sometimes we may not need a tool at all. It's more of a, you know, a governance process or a dialogue or, or you know, a culture shift or, or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, so, like, um, to actually solve a problem, you need a tool, not the other way around, right? So actually defining that problem first is really important. Exactly. Um been doing a lot of work in this space as well. So like that's so refreshing to hear that you're obviously taking that similar approach where it's not, uh, tell me how to install IoT. It's actually, well, what do you want to do with that? And what problem are you trying to solve? Because maybe it's not that. And sometimes it may be just, oh, actually that team just needs to talk to that team because that data is already available or whatever the case is, right? That's exactly it. And all of our teams were because we have that really fortunate global footprint there on the ground working with communities. So elements like human-centered design, co-design, building these kind of feedback loops, it's front and center of our, of our work, because if not, we don't know what tools we need to be bringing into the problem to, to tackle the problem either. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just going back a little bit, just in case people don't know what um, the sustainable development goals are, I assume most people listening will, but maybe, and you've given a little bit of an explanation, can you just give us a bit of a 101 and then also when the work started and, and what kind of progress you've seen to date? Yeah, so um, thanks for the, the prompt because we talk about this language sometimes and there's definitely a bit of an assumption around it. So the sustainable development goals were agreed at the UN General Assembly by by all member states in 2015. And they are a set of 17 goals to improve you know, how we live on the planet, tackle poverty, improve coexistence with, with nature, build partnerships, obviously um, improve peace and, and many other aspects as well. We have 17 of these goals. They're enormous in, in scope. Like we're looking at you know, ending poverty, um, improving biodiversity on land, in the sea, uh, driving new industry and opportunity. And obviously most recently in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, real focus on on good uh, health and, and well-being as well. I think what's interesting about the SDGs is um, two aspects that really come to mind for me. First is that they're all interlinked. So obviously we can't tackle poverty if we're not also improving gender equality um, or if we're not creating new industries and new opportunities. The second is that all 17 SDGs are relevant for every single country around the world. It's not just a lower income context. So the precursor to the SDGs was the Millennium Development Goals, which ran until 2015. These were largely focusing on lower income countries. The SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are a truly global uh, task and, and priority. The slightly, well, not slightly, but the, the much more distressing fact now is that, particularly after the context of the pandemic, that we're off track with, I think, many of the SDGs. Um, we have a deadline of these of 2030, and in some cases, we're seeing progress halting. And even in some cases, we're seeing progress reversing or going to decline. UNDP, we measure what we call human development in countries around the world. And actually, in 2020, firstly, we saw the first global increase in global poverty for the first time in two decades. But then we also saw human development reversals in about 90% of countries around the world. So this stuff is getting very, very scary. And there's a real need to kind of get us back on track to achieving these by 2030. Yeah, that's a lot. Thanks for sharing that. Because I also think um, even if we're working or we're in this space, I um, might be aware of the SDGs. Actually, you know, you've got your 17 up top, but there's so many different layers underneath, right, of actual, exactly. like, you know, the actions that happen. It's not just 
this kind of top level. It's all these other things that you're measuring against. That's exactly it. And we've got, I think, more than 300 targets for the SDGs, which are ways to you know, kind of guide your action on the ground. Um, and actually, we published a study last month at the General Assembly where we saw that actually technology and digital actually contribute to directly contribute to about 70% of those goals and probably are also you know, quite significant contributors to the other 30% as well. So there's an element about the tool conversation, like, you know, how do we actually drive resource and direction against those? But also elements like, you know, this discussion here, like, are really important because we need to be building that kind of community and momentum and partnership to achieve this stuff as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just having, starting those conversations and that, you know, awareness leads to focus, which then leads to action, I think is really important. And I think, you know, like everything, the SDGs were kind of a really hot topic maybe, what, four years ago or so. Um, but now it's like, well, now the actual action's happening. What, you know, it's the hype of, you know, the curve, the hype curve, right? Um, we all kind of um, think about that. And now it's like, well, those actions, and in particularly ones where we're seeing things go backwards as well, I guess, can we use tech and data to help us kind of re- reverse that? Yeah, the data one is a really interesting one. So I'm a pretty big data nerd. So Same. I think we, when we talk about smart cities, <laughs> uh, when we talk about smart cities, often like it becomes synonymous with big data. And big data can be really powerful and, and really useful in terms of you know showing trends at enormous levels and allowing us to course correct. I have this really cheesy acronym about like data being like BLT. So big data is one, but we also need to use lean data and thick data. So lean data is like data you can use to like, you know, iterate your product or service. If you're, you know, an innovator working in the urban space, uh, lean data is also useful if you're managing like a portfolio of different interventions. So if you're a city administrator or policymaker, but the thick data is the kind of more qualitative insights, the time in communities, the, I guess the lives and the livelihoods behind those big data data points. So I think when we talk about data, it's also building that kind of broad understanding of what data is and, and how it can be useful because these different aspects of data can drive different elements of progress. Like big data can give you the kind of trends and the direction and allow you to, to really pivot. Uh, thick data gives you that underlying need of the community that you can then design tools and responses and interventions around. But the other side of data as well is that it's useful if it's not, it's useless if it's not used. So it's also how do we build, I guess, firstly, like data literacy, particularly within governments. As a, you know, ex-civil servant myself, you know, data literacy is not something that was often front of mind. Like it would be something siloed away to economists or statisticians or, or IT teams, but it needs to be a fundamental tool of, of policymaking, service design, service delivery. So part of that, you're building data workflows, you're building skills, and you're also trying to make data useful for decision-making. So that includes how you're telling stories around data, how you're doing visualization, dashboards, um, and all this as well. So agree, like data and all these other tools are really valuable in terms of actually trying to get us back on track. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the storytelling element is really key. And I've been doing a lot of um, thinking around that as well and and, and reading, or I say reading, listening, because I always listen to audiobooks, but listening to audiobooks around it as well. Um, I just um, listened to Data Feminism, which I found really fascinating because it actually, uh, when I was doing my Master of Data Science, it was a lot about taking the emotion out of it, right? Whereas this is like the complete opposite of that, of recognising that as human beings, no matter whether the, no matter you know what you take out of the the data, what you show, you're adding emotion because you're an emotional you know person and a human being. So you're going to add whatever is or is already happening. So actually, we can use that in our in our storytelling, which again can be used for good or evil. But we 
And we already know that it's used so on the other side as well when we think about marketing and all that kind of stuff as well. Can we actually use that in a positive way, in a good way to actually get action happening or elicit a certain emotion based on real numbers and facts and also the thick data that you're talking about as well is so important because the numbers and the stories have to be included because if they're not, we're just, you know, there's so many different implications depending on what it is. You, you know, it's too too many to actually to name, but things like bias and things like that, because if we don't understand the stories, what's the point? Like we're not doing this for humans, then what are we actually doing, right? I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned the bias and the gender angle, I think are really important when we talk about data. So there's a really good study done by our friends at UNICEF, I think, during the pandemic, where they looked at the kind of impact of like, you know, movement restrictions on people's behavior. And they saw in some countries like, you know, the movement, because they could you, you look at, you know, movement of, of mobile phone data and this kind of stuff, they could see that actually, you know, maybe a movement restriction was about, I don't know, 18, 90% effective in a country. But when they disaggregated that by poverty level or income level, they saw that actually the poorest people in that community were the ones who were moving around more during lockdown because they had to go out to work. They couldn't work from home because their work was more informal or flexible or required them to be obviously supporting other parts of the community. So I think first is that kind of importance of really digging into the data. But also when we talk about aspects like gender, like it's also the source of that data. We see a lot of work happening where you're using mobile phone data to inform policies. And, and again, migration is, is a great one here. You can use, and we have seen use like anonymized, completely anonymized call data to see actually how people are moving around to tackle crisis. But often in many communities, women won't own a mobile phone. So you're risking designing policies and interventions that are only relevant or useful for half your population because you're not counting that half of the population in the first instance. So it's also how we're getting this data and how we'll make it useful, but also being alert to those biases as, as well. And then just finally on that, I talked earlier about dashboards. Like dashboards are a really, really valuable tool, but often dashboards will only feature what is easy to measure or what you can even measure in the first place. And so sometimes we need to really be cautious about actually what we see on the screen is not the whole story. There's often a lot more stories and perspectives that we can't visualize or we don't understand or we don't collect in the first place or we don't even know that are happening. Yeah, that's so important. And I think, um, yeah, thanks for sharing the the mobile phone um, example as well, because I think sometimes when we talk about like the gender inequity and things like that, people often just go to the really kind of obvious things. Whereas, you know, just thinking about who doesn't, like, who are you excluding just because they don't have, you know, the phone or, or whatever. But you have to think about that when you're measuring these things, because sometimes it's it's not just that, you know, well, a lot of the time it's not that blatant, obvious, you know, bias and things like that really makes the impact. Those things exist as well, of course, uh, but they're a bit more obvious these days because we're talking about them more. But it's like that underlying the things that are missing uh, is really key. One of the first books I read on it was Invisible Women, and I, I found that fascinating. And and just kind of then leading on to then that, you know, led me to more and more and getting deeper into it with the data side of things. And what I liked about data feminism was that it didn't just present, you know, this is the issue. It actually then started talking about some of the, the things we could do to solve it and the work that that people all around the world are doing as well. I mean, Invisible Women for me was a really powerful book where you see just how systematically like data can, um, you know, badly collected data or not telling the right story can, can have impact. So for those of you who haven't read it, like it's everything from female police officers, their body armor doesn't work in the same way because they haven't used female models to we've kept office temperatures too cold for women for like 50 years because we've based temperature measurements in an office on, on male workers. So like this level, this work has like systematic 
uh, and really kind of negative multipliers if, if we don't do it well. And it's it's really concerning in that sense. The other part is how you bring, just staying with the gender angle as well, like how you bring more voices into the space. So I think one of the really exciting areas we see about digital adoption is you need to be building local content and content that is relevant to people because often we talk about digital and digital transformation, the internet, but in some places this stuff is quite abstract. Like it doesn't seem relevant to day-to-day lives, but if you make it relevant and tangible and and real, that's how you drive inclusion to many extent. So if you're building content in local languages, if you're building content that speaks to different audiences, I used to do some work with um, uh, girls coding clubs. Like if you're getting girls building stuff, probably other girls are going to want to use those tools and products and services. And that's how you start driving inclusion in that aspect as well. It's not a panacea or a silver bullet, but it's one tool again in your toolkit to start making this work and this world much more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. I often talk about we need more diversity behind the code to serve the diversity in front of it. Because if we're using things that aren't designed by people that you know that look very different to us and think very differently to us. And and again, we're not, it's not a one size fits all, not all not, as we know. It's not a hum, um, homogenous group um, by any stretch of the imagination, women or uh, you know any kind of um, community, right? We're not a humo- homogenous group. And so having more diversity is so important. And it's not just, you know, like background and ethnicity and things like that. That's obviously really, really important as well, but also just bringing different creative, uh, you know, the word the word escapes me. I want to say creative tendencies, but just the, like the way that our brain works, right? Like getting more people, the creative people into STEM because, you know, I need more engineers that uh, actually care about the world. And, you know, if you want to change the world, you want to be asking what type of engineer should I be? I'm an engineer, so I'm I'm biased in that um, element. So I want more people that really care about sustainability in there that, you know, that you don't just have to go down you know, you can bring you bring all those those um, skill sets with you, and I think that's really important when we get like we're not just um, you know you don't just have to like concrete and and math to be an engineer or whatever the case is because we can make a real difference in this space if we've got more scientists that have you know that bring different thoughts and and different um, ways of thinking in the uh, or different experiences from their from their worldviews as well. I can agree more, and um, we're seeing this with with AI, right? Like. We need the computer science. Like we need to understand, you know, how these tools work, how they function, how they can be interrogated and, and audited, and, and all this. But you also need the social science. Like a lot of stuff we talk about AI, particularly around ethical applications and so on. These are not new conversations. You know, these are grounded in decades, hundreds, centuries of, of years of knowledge, of ethics, of philosophy, sociology, and, and politics. And there is a need for these two elements to kind of coexist more. And I think a lot of our work at UNDP is driven by what we call collective intelligence. And that is exactly what you're speaking there is that how do we broaden our innovation to include more new and also underheard voices? Like it's to all of our benefits because we end up building better things if we're working on this stuff together. One thing I'm particularly passionate about is also we talk a lot about what we call South to South collaboration. You know, how do lower income countries and cities work together and collaborate together? But for me, there's something really cool about South to North as well. So for example, Kenya, Nairobi in particular had, you know, mobile money like 15 years before London did because of that kind of need on the ground for innovation and another aspect. So how can, I don't like the term, but how do developed countries learn from from their developing counterparts? Because there's so many, there's so much opportunity to kind of learn from the innovation and the perspectives and the minds in in many countries around the world. Mm, Absolutely. And then that opens up the dialogue so then we can share back and forth as well, right? Because we're both getting something out of that. It's it's not just one, you know, one way. Um, no, I, I totally agree. And even just learning from different cultures, 
just working, I've been like working and visiting around the world, you know, the things just, again, we're both doing, I don't know, like the same outcome, but the way that we approach it is so different. We can learn from each other. We might not change anything, but you just kind of like get a better appreciation or you just go, yeah, I wonder why we do it that way. And just asking, you know, those kind of questions, if we could do it in a different way. And it also always fascinates me when uh, we can actually agree globally on how to do something like, like, or a certain technology, like barcodes, for example, like they're everywhere. Like how amazing is that, that we did that on global scale, but some, we'd need to do that for other things. So, you know, so we have interoperability with data and, and, you know, IoT and, and things like that as well. So then we can actually um, really collaborate across borders. And I mean, that can be like a global country level, but even just um, sometimes the same organization uh, needs to have that, uh, you know, you start really small, but then we can kind of spread out. And and I think we've been able to do it before in the past, like you said, with some, um, some of those other examples. But yeah, it, then it's branching out to these other more complex um, systems, which seems so overwhelming now as well. Completely, completely agree. And we actually have some work coming out, I think, later this year on the role of like open source within cities. You're, you know this better than anyone as, as an engineer, but for others, like open source is, you know, how you have, for example, with, with software, your code is completely visible so people can reuse it, adapt it, adopt it, audit it. But we also have open source hardware. So things like 3D printing, maker spaces, and, and this kind of stuff. And open source is really valuable for that kind of interoperability, right? You can connect different solutions, you can build in-house, you can strengthen your kind of digital resilience. But it's also shaped a really interesting way of thinking about collaboration and openness and agility and building that kind of ecosystem within your your city or your community or, or your country. So we're really excited to kind of launch this. I think hopefully next month the, the paper will be out. But that kind of on a technological level, you know, the the mindsets and the tech behind open source could be really powerful ways of actually driving some of those, you know, city collaborations, global collaborations, that kind of partnership as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, yeah, I've been doing a bit of um, work in that space too. It's it's a different way of thinking about things. Like it's quite the opposite of, um, say, a Western or, a, you know, this kind of capitalization world we find, our, you know, capitalist world we live in. So it is different. And then, but it's so important, particularly when we're talking about that communication and with the communities, then they can understand that digital literacy that you were talking about earlier I'm going to Barcelona. Uh, actually, I'll have gone by the time this episode comes out at the Smart City World Expo. And I'm on a great panel with a lady from uh, the CEO, Jackie or Jacqueline from uh, Helpful Places. And oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jackie. She's yes. a great work. Yeah, 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 exactly. Amazing. So, like, just one example, and I'll have to get her on the show. So then we'll, to the audience, we'll get, we'll Jackie on the show, but um, we'll put the link in the show notes. But she's um, basically a, the plan open source global standard i standard to economy of yeah yeah to um i'm not explaining it very well so the audience can be like what is this i don't understand but uh basically being able to communicate to the community what technology is available but it's and and you it's like a, a qr code that you can scan and then you can see the data behind it you can see the technology that's being used but what I love about it the most, and I, to be honest, I need to I get into it in, in more detail and I'm really excited to meet with Jackie, is that you have to, as the person deploying the technology, the, the questions that you have to answer, why are you using, what are you using this data for, who's using it, they are so important because, uh, and you have to answer them before you can kind of deploy that if you know you follow the standards or whatever. So I think that's a really interesting piece and, and it's really going to, 
shift the way we think about how we communicate what technology we're deploying because we've thought about it, which is really good as well. Yeah, and then the other side is from the like a resident perspective in the in the city as well. The the model, like like you say, has this kind of taxonomy of you know, for example, you, you scan a QR code above a, a traffic camera and it tells you you know who's collecting that data, why they're collecting it, why it's useful for you. And I think you're also making this stuff more tangible and, and real to people because they don't just see a sensor, you know, just there. They actually see, okay, this has improved my day to day life to, by doing X, Y, and Z. So again, making this stuff more tangible and, and relevant can, can be really powerful. Just on that open source angle as well, like UNDP, we are one of the kind of big partners of what we call a digital public goods alliance, which is a kind of repository of open source digital solutions. And I think the other part of open source is that it means that cities and countries don't have to start their journey from scratch. Like it can start 70, 80% of the way down the path. There's no need to reinvent a wheel or build from new or even make the same mistakes as other places. The registry is really exciting because we've got hundreds of different innovations on there that anyone can use immediately. So anything from a fully-fledged identity platform to a payment platform to smaller interoperability components, um, even things like um, you know council websites are on there as well, kind of like a front end that you could you know drop in your logo or your details, and then you have a website for your local authority. So if anyone is listening and is doing digital work on this, like go to the Digital Public Goods Registry, see if there's tools there. But also, if you're building open source solutions, let us know because we'd love to find ways to recognize these for other cities, other communities to use around the world too. That's awesome. We'll um, put all the links in the show notes so people can find that. That'll be that's awesome. I love that. I'll um, go check that out myself as well. Now we are going to go to the future soon, but I firstly want to ask you what is your favorite project that you have done or been involved in or are aware of. <laughs> There's no shortage of them. I, I'm I'm phenomenally fortunate to be in this position to be working with so many cities and, and innovators. One that I did especially enjoy was one last year with our team in in the Gambia and in, in Banjul, the local authority there, where we were working again from from scratch, a human centered design approach, a co-design to improve how the local market was functioning. So like how traders could better pay their their rent for their space, but also how I could communicate with with other traders for how citizens could understand you know where to go in the market to actually buy particular produce and, and all this so it was a really exciting way of getting quite deep into a local issue where you're helping residents you're helping traders and then you're also helping the municipal authority in terms of tax collection revenue collection and all this as well but yeah i'm very lucky that every day we're working on really really exciting and, and important stuff that's awesome we'll put the links for your website and everything in the show notes as well and and yeah, I think um, people would be super interested because there's so much, I guess, so much scope in this space as well. So you must work on a whole range of different things to know one day would be the same as the next. Yeah. I'm <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, well, let's zoom to the future now. Um, what do you think the emerging trends are that people aren't talking about enough? So I think the one of the big ones for me is that, you know, cities are potentially a not under-recognized, but they are a real driver of development. So I think the more we can engage at the city level, and as we talked about earlier, like redefine what the smart concept means to look at that kind of broader toolkit and that inclusion aspect is is really essential. When we're looking at a world where the SDGs are off track and progress by 2030 is looking very, very difficult, we need to be looking particularly at cities because they're the closest administrative actor to, to people. It's where a lot of innovation is coming from. And they're also often real catalysts of, of national economies as well. So for me, the city piece is, is really interesting and, and really, really important. In terms of under-recognized, I think understanding the kind of online, offline, I guess, dichotomy is really important. Like we talk a lot about things like the gig economy, 
you know, online e-commerce, this kind of element. But we don't think about what this means in the real world. Like, for example, how do we redesign our spaces to support, you know, gig workers who often work in quite precarious positions in their work? How do we look at redesigning offline spaces to support e-commerce? Because I'm sure we're all receiving many parcels at home and, and so on, and local services are, are stretched. So I think that online, offline pieces may be a little bit underexplored. And then the third aspect for me is also that kind of redefinition of the smart city. Like, you know, let's look at that kind of broader toolkit and we'd love to hear from anyone on in the audience, you know, what are you working on? That is obviously high tech, low tech, no tech as well, because we need this pos- this broadest possible toolkit for all the urban challenges and the opportunities that we're seeing. Yeah, I think that's a really um, a nice frame of the kind of the recognition that it's not all online or offline, it's not all digital. It's like, as we know, but sometimes we might forget about that when we're only thinking about, you know, the digital tools or whatever, but actually what is that interaction with the physical realm as well as the digital realm? Because the more we like move into this digital realm, I also think we see this kind of move to digital, but then we see the comeback of like the kind of physical realm as well. So we're still, we're always going to have that kind of push and pull, I think. Exactly. And I think that it doesn't have to be attention. I think there's a really exciting opportunity to to have more of that kind of, um, you know, that journey between the online and the offline and vice versa. And we'd love to see, you know, cities engaging with that more. And it's everything from, you know, how you redesign your public space for, I don't know, community parcel hubs or, or whatever, to how we look at the impact of things like the gig economy and things like dark kitchens and, and so on. There's a lot of stuff that I think is really worthy of, of digging too deep and, and how we design or redesign public spaces for, for the 21st century. Mm. So where to next for smart communities? It's a very good question. I think for me, the community is the key aspect here. As we talked about in terms of open source, the SDGs, every city around the world is on this journey together. Maybe some are further ahead, some are a little bit further behind, some have slightly different uh, outcomes or destinations in mind, but we're all looking at, you know, how do we make our urban spaces more more inclusive, more livable, more sustainable, resilient and, and connected. So I think that community is, is really important, like learning from each other, talking to each other. I'm a big fan of sharing failures as free fail startups to my name and this kind of stuff like we should be sharing what isn't working as well and being open and, and honest because it's only through that sharing and that discussion and this kind of community that we're really going to get to those to achieving the SDGs and, and other outcomes as well so for me where it should go next is to keep that community and to really value that community as well mm, yeah I think the values is a really important one again it's a it's like easier said than done I think it's a mindset shift right it's similar to the open source, I suppose, because we don't sell a like we we're very scared of failure, and then you know that kind of that societal pressure. But and then on the opposite, when you hear someone fail, you actually need to shift your mindset as well because you think about what can I learn from this, not just oh my god, I can't believe they did that or whatever the case is. Well, you're completely right, and you also mentioned celebrate. So as, as a ex public servant, like when you're in the civil service, <laughs> you only get heard sometimes when things go wrong. And we also need to be celebrating talent. And, and actually on, on that note, last week we launched our annual Future of Government Awards, so futuregovernmentawards.com. And what we want to do is we want nominations from truly everywhere about local cities, uh, governments who are working on digital and innovation because we want to champion civil servants and the teams. We have two awards on there actually that are explicitly about open source, You know, people who are open using open source solutions or adapting them. But we also have award for teams, individuals, leaders as well, because we really need to champion this public sector talent because it's where a lot of problems are being solved. And it's also where we need more minds and new perspectives into that world. And so if we encourage people to think about that as a career, because 
we're celebrating it, I think is really important. I think that's so important um, because we need that talent within the, we need that thinking, that different thinking in the government. And I think it's going, like I always uh, see the smart community kind of approach and and doing things differently and, and celebrating that as a really important one for talent attraction and retention. Because if we don't, we can't compete on that global scale. And there's only so much consultants can do without, you know, that driver from the inside. So I think that's that's great. And um, we'll put the link in the show notes as well so people can find that too. That's really kind. Thank you. And I think all of you working in digital and agile, like, it's very easy to do, to run a sprint and go into the next thing and the next thing and never like pause and look up and reflect and, and celebrate. We've got a blog on this, I think, if we can maybe add to the links as well, but it's mentions a, a thinker in a space called Whitney Johnson, and she has this notion of celebrating to win. That actually, like, if we want to do bigger and better things, we have to celebrate what we've done already because that celebration is a really powerful driver of doing bigger, better, better things as well. So celebration in itself is is really important, but I'm sure all of you don't have celebrations in your K- KPIs or your project plans, but it's a really, really important aspect to, to do this stuff well. Yes. Okay. So add celebration into the KPI. How many celebrations did we have? And maybe they are celebrations of failure as well, of learnings, you know, what we learned. Exactly. I think this is a really important direction and we really want to see innovations around the world through the awards and champion that where we can as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Callum, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. I feel like we definitely could have some more conversations and I think we definitely will and we need to. Maybe we can find a place around the world and meet in 3D at some point too. I hope so. Thank you for having me. No, that was awesome. One last question. How can people connect with you? So uh, usual channels, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, or X, I'm on there. Um, I'll share my email as well. I'm happy to keep in touch and always very happy to learn about what others around the world are doing. So please do keep in touch and look forward to hearing from you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Callum, again for coming onto the podcast. And I really look forward to our next conversation. So looking forward to it too. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.